After mocking Israel and blaspheming God, David's anger is kindled as he sets his heart on the battle for the glory of God and for the liberation of God's people, Israel. This is the 35th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 1, Samuel in chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 through verse 30. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes this. Now, David was the son of that Ephratite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab, and the third, Yeshamah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself forty days. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves and run to the camp to thy brethren and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousands and look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines and David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him and he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the army in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hands of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and he will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, what shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab his eldest brother heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why camest thou down hither, and with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another, and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. The Hebrew writer writing to us in Hebrews chapter 11, the first six verses. By the same spirit, the apostle says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day, and it is, to be sure, a gospel of victory. Now once again, Israel and the Philistines square off for battle. 
At this time, however, the situation takes a different dynamic. Instead of engaging in an all-out battle, the Philistines offer an alternative. That alternative was Goliath. Goliath of Gath, of whom was a giant, who was a giant of a man, almost 10 feet, if you remember, almost 10 feet tall, clothed in brass and iron. Very, very intimidating. Because that is what he was meant to be, intimidating. So, his height, his stature, his armor was all there for the intimidation of Israel. He was the express representation, as we have seen, of God's judgment and wrath symbolized by the brass and the iron. He was, and no doubt about it, he was an intimidating foe. But he was only intimidating to the fearful Israelites. As a result of their faithlessness and their lack of devotion and trusting God, They were easily intimidated, and as a result, they were easily manipulated. Intimidation makes the fearful intimidated, and then, therefore, they are easily manipulated. Fear is what the enemy seeks to instill in all people, but especially in God's people, through intimidation, for the express purpose of control. It's all about control. Israel was being controlled by the Philistines. Whenever God's people submit to fear, faith departs, and they are easily dominated. All tyrannical entities, whether it is an individual, a father, a mother, a husband, a pastor, or a governing official, they want control. That's what they want. All tyrannical entities want control so that they can be the ultimate dominator over another person's conscience, life, and future. You see, that's really what it's about. Goliath was there to intimidate Israel to the point where their conscience was so violated that they were no longer able to fight. They were no longer able to look up to God or to pray. Over and over and over we read that Jesse's sons were following Saul. Notice, they were not following God, they were following Saul. When people follow man, they will be easily intimidated. So the Philistines sought to control their future, Israel's future, by intimidating them. In fact, what they were seeking to control was their own future. They believed that if they could control Israel's future, they would then be in control of their own future, and their future would be masters over the slavish Israelites. They believed that they could gain ultimate control and domination by destroying any possibility of an uprising by the Israelites. If the Israelites were so fearful that they would not uprise, then the Philistines, it was a shoo-in. They could walk right in and dominate the fearful Israelites. So Goliath's plan, the Philistine plan, was to first intimidate Israel so that they would be psychologically unprepared to fight. This was an intimidation tactic. By destroying the morale of the nation of Israel through Goliath's intimidation tactics, they would be that much closer to their goal of ultimate domination. Now what must be understood at this juncture, is that Israel was fearful as a direct result of Saul's wickedness and poor leadership. Whenever you have poor leadership, you will have a people ripe for control, ripe for intimidation, ripe to fear. And so while in the midst of fear and and impending destructive conflict, at least that's what they saw, they thought this was it. This was an impending catastrophe. There was nothing they could do. We see the giant, we see the brass, we see the iron, we see his armor bearer, we see the intimidation, and of course, we have a foregone conclusion that we're done. That's what fear does. And so while in the midst of fear and an impending destructive conflict with the dreaded Philistines, David is once again brought into the historical narrative. Thank God for one man to stand against the Philistine. Notice, now David was the son of that Ephratite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. He had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. Now God here again is pleased to record David's lineage a second time as the son of this man, Jesse of Bethlehem, Judah. The reason for this repetition is so that we do not miss its importance. Now if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, we can see the import. Notice, 1 Samuel 1.1. Now there was a certain man of Ramoth 
Am Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and Ephratite. Now, the beginning of the book of Samuel, we are introduced to this faithful priest, Elkanah, this faithful man who was the husband of Hannah who bore Samuel. In other words, David is now associated with the covenant line of priests. And while Goliath is a covenant breaker, David, as we shall see, and has, as we have seen, is a covenant keeper, which makes a dramatic distinction between the two. You have a covenant breaker and a covenant keeper. Furthermore, not only was David associated with the lineage of priests, he was from Bethlehem, Judah. Any association with Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, has gospel ramifications since Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, these gospel references, this house of bread, is not only to show forth that he is the bread of life, which gives salvation, but that this is the man of God, the Christ of God, who is also the dominant force in nature. He is the same messianic Christ who is spoken of in Psalm 2. In other words, to make mention of Judah or to make mention of Bethlehem is to point forward not only to Christ as Savior, but the kingly office of Christ as the kingly magistrate among nations the kingly tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus, who David symbolizes. So we see the connection with David and the priestly line of Elkanah. But there is a curious addition to David's lineage. The scripture makes mention of Jesse in a very particular fashion. Notice what it says in verse 12. Now David was the son of that Ephratite of Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And notice the next line. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. Now, the literal Hebrew tells us that Jesse was stricken in age and was therefore, according to God's law, exempt from going to battle. The phrase, went among men for an old man, is to be translated, he was stricken as other old men, implying he was not able to fight. And yet, to his credit, he sends his three eldest sons to the battle in order to represent the family. To his credit, as a faithful patriot, he sends his sons to represent him. We then read in verse 13, and the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul, and that's a phrase there that we have to recognize. He was sending his sons, and they, as God very clearly says, and they followed Saul to the battle. But David, verse 14 was the youngest. And then, right after that, it says, and the three eldest followed Saul. Again, a second time. Twice the scripture states that these three eldest sons were followers of Saul. They had bought into this idea that a man could save them. They had bought into the idea that a king could save them. A president, a congressman, a judge, whatever. But knowing what we know about Saul and what Jesse's sons should have known about Saul from Samuel, this was a mistake. It seems as if these sons were on board with the idea that a king would be their salvation and that a king like any other nation and every other nation could deliver them. And yet, without God intervening, that could never be the case. Verse 14 makes another mention that David was the youngest And this is a clue as to his age. According to the law of war, God's law of war, a young man had to be at least 20 years old to serve in a military campaign. If he was younger, he was not allowed to serve in a military campaign. Therefore, David may have been just shy of that since he was in the camp of Saul bringing provisions but not gearing up for battle. Now consider the responsible shepherd. Here it is again, the character of the young shepherd boy. Verse 15, But David went and returned from Saul. Remember, he was in the courtroom of Saul. He was in the house of Saul. He was playing the harp for Saul. He was assuaging his demons and he was comforting him. And now he left the house of Saul, went to return to his father's sheep to care for them. And we see that 
he went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And this shows, once again, shepherding care, the boy's shepherding care for his father's sheep. That was his responsibility. He was ready to give up looking for any kind of, of honor in the battle. And he comes and he takes that responsibility seriously to care for his father's sheep. This again is now a contradiction to Saul. Because Saul, here we have a dramatic distinction between David and Saul. If you remember, Saul was ready to give up looking for his father's donkeys, while David remains responsible to his calling and his duties to care for his father's sheep. So we have another distinction of the character traits of these two men. Now by this time, Goliath was taunting Israel day and night, day and night, over and over and over, for 40 days. And the Philistine, verse 16 And the Philistine drew near morning and evening. That became the devotion for Israel. They were being intimidated morning and evening. It wasn't being let up. Nothing was alleviating the situation. They were being taunted morning and evening, presenting himself 40 days. 40 days, morning and evening. The 40-day presentation of the giant is no arbitrary number. Now we see this number 40 used symbolically in many instances in the same way brass and iron was used to describe the giant's armor. Remember, the flood continued for 40 days and nights in the same way that Goliath presented himself for 40 days and nights before Israel. This was a symbolic symbol, a symbolic number of judgment. Moses was on Mount Sinai, a figure of the law of God, which also would lend itself to the judgment of the law, 40 days and 40 nights. After the spies searched the land of Canaan for 40 days, initially, instead of trusting God to go in and take dominion, because there were giants in the land, they were fearful. They showed themselves fearful and faithless, and as a result, God told them that for every day of those 40 days that they searched the land in fear, and came back with a fearful representation of what the land looked like, it would be to them a year of trial as part of their judgment. We read this in Numbers 14.34. After the number of the days in which he searched the land, even 40 days, each day for a year shall be your iniquities to bear, even 40 years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. So they were fearful, and they then, of course, had to bear their punishment for being afraid. Moses prays for 40 days and nights so that God would not destroy Israel for their sin. In Deuteronomy 9.18, notice, And I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which ye sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Again, 40 days, 40 nights. God through Jonah promises that after 40 days Nineveh would be destroyed. The number again, number 40, again symbolizing judgment. We read this in Jonah 3, 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey and he cried and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Ezekiel was commanded to lay upon his right side for 40 days, symbolizing the 40 years of Judah's transgression and God's judgment against them. Christ himself was in the wilderness for 40 days and nights in the same way Moses was on the Mount Sinai not eating or drinking. And this too, I believe, is where Christ was being tempted while at the same time contemplating the judgment of God. Upon Christ's resurrection, he declares himself the undisputed king of nations. And for 40 days before his ascension, showing himself to the nation that he had been judged, yet victorious over sin and death. This 40-day event was also a period where he would once again search out the land of Canaan victoriously, not like the, not like the fearful Israelites in, in the days of Moses, but as the victorious king, searching out the land for 40 days and 40 nights, this time not fearful, but victoriously conquering it because of his victory over sin and death. We might see this 40-day period as a time of testing as well. Goliath's taunting. 40 days and 40 nights. A test. He was testing to see if there was a man that would come down and fight. Goliath's taunting, the spies searching, the Lord's wilderness temptation. All of these point to a time of great testing under a period of judgment. And so there may be these both symbols in this idea of the 40 days and 40 nights. But to be sure... 
Israel was facing a serious test of faith and they were failing miserably. Even though Jesse is not active in the fight, he is supportive in it and shows as much by commissioning David to bring supplies to the troops. And we see this in verses 17 and 18. Jesse says to David, Take to your brethren an ephah of parched corn, an ephah of this corn, and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses. So we have a number of things here. The corn, the loaves, the cheeses, and check and see how your brethren are doing. Now let's consider what he brings. First, he brings a measure of parched wheat or grain. The word corn is a poor translation in the King James. It is actually literally a kernel or wheat. The word corn is not in the original, but it is to be translated as kernel. The second thing he brings is 10 loaves of bread. Notice the number, notice the number 10 signifying completeness or sufficiency as in the Ten Commandments or as in the Ten Plagues upon Egypt or in the Tenth, the Tithe or the Ten Virgins or even Jesus' declaration of himself as the Great I Am in John's Gospel which he says ten times. We might even add the human fingers and toes. Got ten fingers and ten toes. Completeness. When God created man, he created man complete with ten fingers and ten toes. What do you do when you have your first child? You count ten fingers, ten toes. Do I have a complete baby? The Reverend E.W. Billinger adds this. He says, Completeness of order, making the entire round of anything, is therefore the ever-present signification of the number ten. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and the order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. Thirdly, he brings ten cheeses. This is curious, since the word used for cheese is more accurately to be translated as milk. Perhaps the milk had to be made into cheese or it was being made into cheese in order to transport it, but the intent of the word is definitely to be rendered milk. So he brings milk, he brings bread, he brings, he brings these things that would encourage them. He brings the corn, he brings the kernel. He brings all of these things that would be used to encourage and strengthen, not only physically, but this is a symbolic spiritual strengthening. All of these foods were to be brought to the army so that they would be strengthened for the battle. And again, the gospel here is presented in these foods symbolically. So we see David, a great type of Christ, whenever the people of God are facing their Goliaths, he delivers these symbolic foods to them and they are strengthened for the battle. There is, of course, a practical lesson here as well. Whenever we're in the battle, whenever we're in any battle with the giants of the enemy, whether it's our sin, our conscience judging us by the law or the wicked of the world, we are to be comforted by the gospel of God, which is brought to us by Christ himself through the word, by the spirit, for our strengthening. Christ is expounding the word unto us so that we are strengthened. The Puritans always believed that the real breaking of the bread was not the communion table. That was symbolic. But the breaking of the bread was the unpacking of the word of God. This word is the bread of life. This is what the minister is to feed the people with so that they would understand the promises of God, the judgments of God, the protection of God, the mercy of God, the comfort of God, the wrath of God against the enemy. So as we preach the gospel, we unpack the gospel and you are then given the bread of life so that you might digest it. And then because we are lambs, we then regurgitate it and we chew the cud and we swallow it again. We regurg- we're always remembering the gospel. We have the gospel in our mind. We have the word of God in our mind. We, we, we bring it to our, our thoughts. Now in light of this, we must recognize that part of the strengthening by the exposition of the word of God is to be sure that you understand not Christ as Savior only, but as Christ as the majesty of God, the promise of God, and the victor over all of the enemy. Now in light of this, we should consider the methodology behind this strengthening against sin. How does David defeat the giant? Translate into our defeat over sin and the condemning power of the law of God. What is the word of God to do when it is unpacked, when it is 
dispense before you. What is the result of the unpacking of the Word of God? Now, some might argue that when it comes to sin, they say, well, it's Christ that has defeated our sin, and we are just simply the recipients of that victory. Well, that is true to an extent, but that poses a problem. While it is true that Christ has given us the victory over sin's dominion, that does not mean that we are excused from the responsibility of actively mortifying our sin and our lawlessness and our iniquity in ourselves. As we shall see, once David defeated the giant, the entire nation of Israel had to rise up and take action against the Philistines. They couldn't just sit by and say, well, hey, David did it, that's good. Let's go back and eat the cheese and eat the bread and, and drink some wine. No. They got up and they began to fight. In other words, they were active in the battle against the enemy in the same way as we ought to be active in the battle against sin and all wickedness whether it's within our own members or within the community or within the nation or wherever it is. We have to take action. Today the Church of Jesus Christ is sitting waiting for the rapture. And that will incapacitate the church because we are called until the day of our death to work while it is still light. We cannot just sit back and wait for Jesus to take away our sin or to rebuild our culture we must be involved in that work. The work of mortification, the work of reconstruction as well. As the Apostle says in Romans 8.13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit, notice that, if ye, if you, by the power of the Spirit, if ye be of Christ, but if you, you all, through the Spirit, to mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. In other words, we have a responsibility. Now, while it is also true that Christ has put to death any condemning power of the law, it does not mean that we are to ignore the law's commandments as to how we are to think and live. We still have a part to play. In fact, the law's condemning power over our conscience is always at work to convict us of sin so that we can mortify sin and then be redirected as to what is right and good in the sight of God. Now, observe the situation of Israel's army under Saul's leadership. Verse 19 and 21. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines for Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array army against army. Now it seems as if there were still minor skirmishes between the Israelites and the Philistines but according to verse 21 there is nothing which indicates that the entire armies were in conflict. They still were on the two mountains and Goliath was presenting himself ultimately before Israel to see who would come down and fight. While the armies are setting up to actually fight, this is when David is preparing to visit the situation, to visit his brethren, but not before he takes responsibility for his shepherding stewardship by leaving the sheep with a keeper. Notice, he didn't just desert them. He left the sheep with a keeper. I find this very interesting. When Jesus told the apostles that he was going to leave them, he said, I will leave you, but... I'm sending you a comforter. I'm sending you a keeper. Same way that David did. We see the symbology here as well. I would not leave you comfortless. I will send you the comforter. So as he leaves, he sends the keeper. Same way that David does. There's so much gospel here. It's incredible. So now, once David gets to the battleground with these provisions that his father had tasked him with, things are at this point at critical mass. Leaving his carriage, he hastens to his brethren only to witness the Philistines taunt by the giant Goliath. And as he talked with them, verse 23 and following, Behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and here's the key phrase, and David heard them. David was listening. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were so afraid. David heard. And David heard the words which the giant spake. And this is so significant, so important. Notice, firstly, while the men of Israel saw Goliath, David heard Goliath. They were looking with eyes of 
flesh. David was hearing with the ear of faith. So while the men of Israel saw Goliath, David heard what the giant said. And this tells us that Israel was, again, like when they looked at Saul, they were looking at an outward show. They were superficial in their assessment of the Philistines' champion. They were looking with the eyes of flesh. Now there are a number of secular proverbs which come to mind. And I think, I think David might have even thought about this. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. And, you know, he's so big, you just can't miss him. Secondly, this shows us what kind of world and life view Israel had. Their worldview was secular. David is about to bring an entirely different world and life view to the situation. He, as a young man, without any weapons, as we shall see, is going to show his fearful Israelites a lesson So while Israel is looking at the physical situation without God factored into the equation, and that's the key, when we look at what's going on today around us, we have to factor God into the equation. For God is providentially orchestrating the equation. For our testing, as the Philistines of Washington are intimidating us 40 days and 40 nights over and over. What will we do? Do we see the giant or do we hear what he says as he blasphemes God? So David is about to bring an entirely different world and life view to the situation. And while Israel is looking at the physical situation, while it got factored into the situation, David is looking at everything from a God-fearing, providential sensitivity perspective. He understands this is God's test. Upon hearing the blasphemy, upon hearing the intimidation, upon hearing the mocking that the giant was spewing forth, this made David's blood boil. We have a man who is angry. And we have a man who is angry and he's not sinning. He is angry with the wicked as God is angry with the wicked every day. Here is a man who had the honor of God instilled in his own heart. Commentator Dale Ralph Davies observes, he says, David brings a whole new worldview to the situation. To this point, the narrative has been godless. But now, David injects the godly question into the episode. Doesn't having a living God make a difference in all of this? David understood That God was a living God. He was not some dead idol. He was not a soul. He was the God of forces. You see, David factors in God into every situation, even when it seems to be the most dire, the most terrible situation, the most incredibly difficult situation, and the most fearful situation. David doesn't care because he's not looking with the eye of sight. He's looking with the eye of faith. And this, I believe, the fact that man, the church, those church-going people, even those ministers that do not factor God into every situation, I believe that this is a fatal flaw of the modern professors of religion today. And you know, it does make my blood boil when I hear people say, God is in control And then they act as if he's abandoned the culture and as as if the culture is out of control in chaos. To them, it seems as if other forces might be at work, mainly satanic forces. Oh, the devil is working, the devil. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the nation of, of God's dominion. This is the world in which God has dominion. So you can't say, well, there are other forces at work that are just as strong as God, mainly mainly satanic forces, which have presented themselves as suitable rivals to the one true God. My friends, my brethren, there's no suitable rival to the one true God. But to make matters worse, these so-called professors of religion manufacture various doctrines to support their heresy, that God is out of control. See, what the church needs to understand is that men and devils are no match for God and they are no match for the faithful church, which needs to stand up as lions, sheep before God, meek before God, but lions before men in the midst of men. While Israel feared and quaked, David became absolutely furious. 
he would have none of Israel's fear. We should have none of the fear of man. Okay, so why? How come? What did he know? What did he know that Israel didn't know? What made him so ferocious? Well, he knew that God was real. He was not a doctrine to be debated or discussed, nor was he an idea to be contemplated. You know, we have to think about that. Do we believe God is real? Or is he just something that we've been educated in? Do we believe that God is real and he is active in the orchestration of every single event on the face of the earth, even in our day? Even at this very moment? If it was happening, we must understand that God is behind it, either directly or from some secondary cause. You see, David knew that if Goliath was taunting Israel, God had bidden him to do so. God had orchestrated it for a very particular reason, to show Israel that they were fearful and they were unworthy of taking the name of Christ. Goliath was a test. He was presented to Israel in order to examine them and to separate the fearful from the faithful. Secondly, David also knew that it was a great evil when the wicked men would blaspheme God. To this, there had to be a response. There has to be a response. You know, it's interesting how the conservatives say, well, you know, uh, the Constitution, you're violating the Constitution, and we need to have a response. Fine, fine, good, have a response. But where is the response when God is blasphemed in all of this? Where is the church's response when God is blasphemed? And when God is blasphemed even by the church, where is the response? John Calvin once stated this, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Israel was so fearful of their enemy that they were unwilling and unable to respond in faith. Their faithlessness made them unable to respond. They were panic-stricken. They had been reduced to a sniveling bunch of little children. Fear had caused them to lose their faith. It had caused their faith to be eclipsed to the point of almost being non-existent. And that's what fear does. Thirdly, David also knew that if Goliath was not met with faith, Israel would be doomed. Because there's no weapon that can be forged against the enemy if it is not forged with faith. It cannot be successful. Fourthly, David was an experienced fighter. He wasn't just some little kid running out there saying, okay, I'm going to hit you with my slingshot, my stone. No, he was experienced. We have to think of David as a lion killer, as a killer of bears. He was tried and tested by God and through the combination of his faith, and that's the key here, the combination of faith and action the combination of faith and skill and experience, and through the combination of his faith and the skills that he possessed, David was ready to fight the giant. Are we ready to fight the giant? Are we ready? David was ready. This was his intent when he penned Psalm 144 and he said, notice he gives credence to God in his strength. He says, blessed be Yahweh my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. With the presentation of Goliath, the men of Israel as well as David are made aware of just how desperate the cowardly king Saul was. This was also to flesh out Saul as a coward. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel he has come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Saul is so afraid of this man, this giant, he's so afraid of of the conflict with the Philistines, even after he was victorious at one point, but he's lost faith now. He's plagued by his own conscience, his own demons. He offers a reward to the man that kills the giant, but he doesn't offer prayers. He doesn't offer sacrifices to God. He doesn't call Samuel for help. You hear none of this. He said, give me a man in his cowardice. And this too is evidence of his reprobation and his secular mindset. He's looking for a man 
Much in the same way that the political groups today think that if they get the right guy in office, everything will be well and we'll have, we'll have nirvana. We'll have utopia. Well, getting a godly man in office is good. No man can bring about a utopian situation. It has to come from God. Now, of course, we should want men to get in there who are Christians, who want the law of God to be part of the nation's fabric, but we cannot trust in men. We cannot trust in anyone, especially a Saul. Israel was bewitched into what I call the cult of Saul, much like many Americans today that look to man as messianic. So here's the challenge. How often do we seek solutions to our situations apart from God? And I don't only mean the big things, but the little things as well. You see, we should be trusting God for the little things so that when it comes time to trust God for the big things, we will then be able to trust God for the big things. If we neglect God in the little things, we will tend to neglect God in the big things simply because we are accustomed to exercising our own will and our strength apart from God. Our own will and our own strength apart from God. So again, once again, God must be factored into every aspect of our lives, no matter how big or how small. Now God says this through his prophet David and his prophet Jeremiah. Notice Psalm 50, Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 33. And call upon me in the day of trouble. This is God speaking. And I will deliver thee. Notice, I will. And thou shalt glorify me. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search me with all your heart. There's a caveat there, with all your heart. Then I'll be sought after. Jeremiah 33, 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Israel was about to see great and mighty things that they never could have imagined. Their brother, Jesse's son, This shepherd boy of Israel was going down to the valley, the valley of blood, and he was going to slay the giant who had intimidated this fearful Israelite camp. It would be an incredible astonishment. They never would have realized this in their wildest imaginations. We are not interdependent on God, but totally dependent upon Him for everything, even the breath in our bodies, for He upholds all things by the word of His power, and that includes us. But I think the problem with the Christian church, the modern church today, is that they really don't know what it means to commune with God in prayer. It is not a formulary exercise. It's an open heart conversation where you talk to God and God listens. Where you pour out everything to God. As you talk with God, God God does answer as He brings things to mind as you pray. You bring the things of promise to your own mind as you remember. God said this and God said that. And the word here, I hit it into my own heart. And it comes back to you. And this is what God does. He, he makes you remember what He has said. That's why you need to read the Word of God. So He answers you as He brings to your mind His promises, those things that you have hidden in your heart. And often, as we pray and as we agonize, and, and I don't know, when's the last time really, really, be honest with yourself, when's the last time you agonized over something in prayer? Well, I can guarantee you this. If you went to the doctor one day and he said, you know, you have, uh, you have cancer. Or you have this illness or that illness. Or your son or your daughter is injured. And, or something terrible, terrible happens. I guarantee you, you will begin agonizing in prayer. Is that what it's going to take? Is that what it's going to take when they line you up for national mandatory vaccinations for you then to agonize in prayer and ask God to help? Or are we going to agonize regularly, knowing the darkness that is approaching? So you see, prayer is not just a formula. Prayer is an action of faith which has to be done diligently and vigorously. And so whenever we are faced with a decision or a situation that needs navigation, 
or a problem, concern or question, we must go to God. We must talk to Him and don't stop talking until He answers. Saul failed to seek the face of God to his shame and discredit because he had forgotten God. He had forgotten who God was and he had replaced God with his own capabilities. And now he was beside himself. By offering a reward to the man that kills the giant, Saul is actually saying that he will enrich anyone that relieves him of his kingly responsibilities. That's what the church has done today. Oh, let let the... Uh, let the congressman deal with it. Let the president fix it. Let this one fix it. No, the church is here to fix it. We cannot relinquish our responsibilities. Saul was a coward. And his leadership made everyone else cowardly. Because when you have a coward leader, a leader who is a coward, everyone will follow that leadership. Note the addition to the situation regarding Saul's reward, which David touches upon in verse 26. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine? And taketh away the reproach from Israel. For who is this, notice, uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? How dare you? Have we ever gone before any magistrate to say to them, how dare you? And of course they'll mock. Well, that's what the Philistines do. They mock. That's what the Goliaths do. They mock. David's concern is the reproach that the giant is pouring out upon God and his people. So here's a man who honors God and will not allow anyone or anything or any institution to speak blasphemously against him. He is so incensed that... that you know, when sometimes you get angry, you, 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 your eyes start watering, your face gets red, you start sweating, you start fidgeting. Like, I can't, can't wait to get my hands on this guy. That's David. He's so incensed that he seems to cry out, who does this uncircumcised, no good for nothing Philistine think he is to defy God's army? This is God's army. And that's the thing we forgot. We forgot this is God's army. We're God's army. Now the reason why the church is so complacent and even sinfully complacent is because of fear. Instead of responding boldly in faith, the modern church responds according to the flesh in fear. In the same way Israel feared the Philistine for lack of faith, so too has the modern church done likewise in their response to the uncircumcised state, the reprobate NEA, the politicized World Health Organization, the so-called medical experts of death and deceit, and any other group that defies the living God. Where is our witness? What are we doing? You know what's going to happen. Everybody's going to be fired up, hopefully, when you leave here today, tomorrow morning, when your alarm goes off, you'll wake up and say, ah, another day to be complacent. Instead of taking the armor of God and doing valiantly for the cause of Christ. God then introduces another situation to young David. But by this time, it doesn't come from the enemy. It comes from his own household. They're mocking him. They're saying, oh, you just wanted to come see the battle. You're, you're, just, you're just a child. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and said, said, and said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride, and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Jealousy and envy, here it is once again from the household of those who should be a faithful household. Jealousy and envy now rears its ugly head against David by his eldest brother, very interestingly enough, by his eldest brother. David is charged by that brother with coming to the battle only to watch Israel quake in fear and to be entertained by the coming battle. Furthermore, he is charged with leaving his responsibilities as a shepherd, which he didn't do. And in addition to these insinuations, David is also charged with pride and wicked intentions. All of this was untrue. David was there at the bidding of his father. He was obedient to his father for the encouragement of the men of Israel and the people that he was trying to encourage were, were kicking back at him. They're saying, oh, stop it. Enough with this. You don't understand. You're just a child. Look at look at out there. Look at that giant. You don't get it. You just, you just want to see us uh, cower and, and be fearful. And that was not the case. But think why he was so angry. In fact, the word anger is literally... The word which means to 
snort through the nostrils in anger. He was actually snorting. He was so angry at David. Now remember, Samuel passed over that brother from being ordained as king. And he chose David, the lowly shepherd, who obviously was ill-regarded by his elder brother. So you've got envy and jealousy. And this must have been one of at least the triggers for Eliab's anger, fueled by his envy and his hatred, that he was not chosen and that David was. And here again we see gospel symbolism. The first is now the last and the last is now the first. In the same way that Adam was the first and now the last, Jesus is the last, but now he is the first. David is now God's prophet, who has no honor among his own brethren and countrymen in the same way that Christ had no honor in the midst of his own countrymen. Referring to himself and all that follow him, Jesus said this, Mark 6, 4, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Furthermore, we see the gospel represented in the numbers. Eliab is number one, while David is number eight. Both numbers refer to the first day of the week. Yet, Eliab, number one, is passed over, while David, number eight, is chosen, pointing us once again, I believe, back to Adam and Christ. Eliab, the first, was not able to defeat the giant and take dominion for Israel in the same way that Adam was not able to defeat his own rebellious tendency and take dominion over the garden. David, on the other hand, was able to defeat the giant and take dominion over the enemy in the same way that Christ was able to defeat the giants of sin, death, and the grave, taking dominion over his people and the entire global order. David then defends himself in verse 29. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Seeking to gain some support in his defense, David turns to the other men in his company and asks them for support, but they all turn against him. Verse 30. And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. Nobody was giving him an inch. They all were condemning him for something that was untrue. And this too is reminiscent of the time when Christ is denied. When he was denied by his own people just before he would go to the great battle over sin and death to become the savior of his people and the king of nations when he went to the cross. We will continue with the battle and the turning point of Israel's entire future when we return to the first book of Samuel and the decisive battle against the dreaded Philistines. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.